And uh, do you have any questions for me this morning? Yes, honey. How can you all get copies of that? Google or go to YouTube and do Sesame Street John John, which is the little boy's name, or Lost Paper Clips, either one. And uh, you'll get it uh, up on that. And a lot of other John John videos as well. This one's my favorite, though. Uh, any other questions? Yes, Leslie. Right, so am I gonna talk about somebody being excluded because of their behavior? Uh, I'm not gonna talk about that specifically, but what I am going to talk about is wh what, he, what Paul is saying there is that people's lives are character characterized by such behavior, that they're lives that are in rebellion to God. We're not talking about, you know, oh, if I'm greedy one time, that's it, I'm out. Obviously, that cannot be the case because we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by works. Um, but that, I will touch on that later on. Any other questions? Kay, did you have a question? Yeah, I am going to talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. I may not talk about everything you want me to talk about, or I may not answer any specific question you have, so make sure you ask it if you, if you have it uh, afterward. Anybody else? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much um, for our time here today. Uh, Father, I walked outside the room and looked outside, and it's, boy, is it dreary. But Father, uh, your, your love and your grace uh, just warm our hearts today, Father, and um, your light that we are to be a part of, that we are to shine to the world, uh, is living in us. And we thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we just look back a little bit, and especially since I hope you all had good weeks last week, uh, I had a very busy one, so it's apparently good that I had a week off. But if we just look back a little bit in chapter 4, um, because what Paul is going to talk about in the whole passage that we're talking about this week is really commentary on this. And so uh, seven, all of 17 through 24, but I'm just going to read 17 and then 20 through 24, where Paul writes this. He says, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And then he talks about that futility, and then he says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So now he's going to expand on that, and he's going to talk about what are those things that we are to put off. In fact, he's going to repeat that exact same word in verse 25. What are those things that we are to put off, and what are those things that we are to put on? What does it mean to be like God? Uh, to, to, we have, we're created to be like God, and so how do we live that out? How do our lives reflect that? Um, and then just to look forward then, in Ephesians uh, 4.25 to 5.14, he's going to primarily, in the first part of that, Ephesians 4.25 to 5.2, he's going to primarily talk about those things that we are to put on, what that life in, uh, in Ephesians 4.20 through 24, what that looks like, what we do because we are in Christ, what do we put on. Not, not completely, but primarily. And then the second half of it, in uh, Ephesians 5, 3 to 5, 14, 
is going to be primarily about what is excluded. What are we to put off because we are in Christ? What is no longer part of our way of living? And he begins by talking about lying and anger by saying this, therefore, since we are to live this life uh, uh, like God, or we are to live this life in such a way to put on what is good and put off what is bad, each one of you must put off, same Greek word, must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So we are to put off falsehood. That is part of what it means to put off the old self, to put off falsehood. And um, then also we are to speak truth. So part of putting on the new person, the new self, is to speak truthfully to our neighbors. Truth is an important theme, uh, not only in Ephesians, but particularly in Ephesians 4. Paul mentions truth in verses 15, 21, and 24, three times before this in chapter 4. And now he lets us know one reason why it is we are to speak truth, and that is because we are all part of one body. We are all members of one body. To speak untruthfully to our brothers and sisters is destructive to the body of believers. I love the way this theologian put it. He said, how strange that one part of the body would deceive another part, as if the eye would lie to the foot about some danger it sees. That would hurt the entire body, would it not? If the eye said, ha, ha, I'm going to get to the foot. There's a boulder there, and I'm not going to tell it. Well, no, the eye is also hurt in that. The entire body is hurt in that. And so, too, when we live lies, when we speak lies to one another, the entire body of Christ suffers because of that. Therefore, speak truthfully to one another. And then he says, literally, he says, be angry, which is why I put a question mark there. Be angry? <laughs> you angry? Um, and that's the literal translation, but although some theologians disagree, and I'm not a theologian, um, I don't think that that's Paul's primary point there, to command anger. He's not saying be angry as a command. His primary point is do not sin in your anger. When you become angry, if you become angry, and that's the way most versions translate it, do not sin in your anger. Because one danger of sin, Paul tells us, is that it gives the devil an opportunity, it gives Satan an opportunity or a place to attack us from. That's actually the literal translation is do not give Satan a place, like a beachhead. Do not give him a front from which he can attack us in our anger. Um, do not give him an opportunity to do that because anger is a sin that leads to other sins. How many times have we seen that? That in our anger, other sins crop up, and particularly sins of the tongue, which Paul will address uh, in just a minute. And that's why they need to be dealt with. That's why anger needs to be dealt with and dealt with quickly. And that's what Paul is talking about here with this proverbial saying, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Now, in ancient Judaism, there was certain business that needed to be transacted before sunset. And so, in a sense, Paul is saying, you know, 
conduct your spiritual business before sundown. Um, but the other reason he's saying this is that festering anger is destructive to people. Um, when, when Jeff and I were married, we were married by a wonderful man that I love very much. But he, had, he, um, he liked to always tell a joke or two uh, during the wedding ceremony. Um, I got lucky. The jokes he told were, were pretty good, and I'm going to tell you one of them now. Uh, my sister's joke had the word neutered in it. And she always said, you know, one word you really don't want to hear in your wedding ceremony would be the word neutered. But uh, so, <laughs> so at our wedding, the pastor told, uh, but I'm, I'm, the, the people that know who I'm talking about are back and going, yep, that's what he did. That's exactly what he did. He told about a couple who had been mar married many years, and, and the husband said of them, he said, you know, we have never gone to bed angry. Of course, there was one night where we stayed up for a week. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but that is true, that when we allow our anger to fester, when we don't deal with our anger at the time, destructive things happen, we are more likely to sin, and it will eat us alive. It, it, it destroys people. Anger destroys people physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It destroys not only our literal bodies, but it destroys the body of Christ. In fact, Hebrew 12, uh, 5 I think it is, but it's Hebrews 12, uh, says to make sure that no bitter root rises up within you and so defile many. Uh, it, it defiles. Anger defiles not only us, but the body of Christ. I just want to just say a couple words about what I've learned, because I, to be completely honest with you, I have had to deal with the sin of anger and the sin of speaking harsh words in my anger, and uh, just what I've learned uh, kind of the hard way, for what it's worth. And the first thing I've learned is that most of the things that have made me angry in my life are not worth the spiritual capital that I have spent on them. And they are certainly not worth the hurt I have caused others in my sin. The second thing that I would say is that the root of anger is selfishness. Not righteous anger. There's such a thing as righteous anger. But the root of most anger, the root of sinful anger, is selfishness. Things are not the way I want them to be, and so therefore I lash out at others. That is why a newborn baby screams when he is hungry. It is why your two-year-old throws himself on the ground in a tantrum because he's not getting what he wants. We may or may not become more sophisticated in how we deal with not getting what we want in our lives. But the root of that anger is still selfishness. I cannot tell you the number of times when I've gotten angry, particularly at my children, and then I thought, I'm the adult here. Why did I get angry at that? What was that about? It's been a lot of dealing with it. Just ask my children. Um, the other thing I've learned is that when I am focused on others and their needs and their desires, I am much less likely to become angry than when I am focused on what I want. I will give you one silly example, pretty silly, mostly silly. Um, those of you who know me know that I am a competitive person. Really seriously, if you want to play tiddlywinks, I want to win. 
Ask Katie about the game of spoons when she was five, when I grabbed that spoon out of her hand and went, yeah! <laughs> I am competitive. And I, as a younger person, drove competitively. To me, I-80 really was, was the Nebraska Speedway. And I had to win. And by the time I got to work or wherever I was going, I was exhausted. It was like, you know, yeah, I won. But man, I mean, that took a lot out of me. Three things happened. The first thing that happened was I got pregnant and somebody else's life was on the line when I was behind the wheel. But that didn't completely solve the problem. The second thing that happened was I confessed to a friend. I confessed to the wrong friend, the friend that is willing to tell me that I'm off when I'm off, the friend that's willing to confront me when I'm wrong. I confessed to him that um, God was dealing with me, that speeding was against the law and breaking the law was against scripture. And so I confessed that to him. And he came up to me a number of months later and said, Amy, how are you doing with the speeding thing? How are you doing with the, the, you know, the, the angry driving thing? And I would get angry at people too, you know, when I was driving. And uh, I said, I, I, um, I think I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> and he said, really? Because I was behind you on Kennedy at the time. <laughs> the speed limit on Kennedy was 50 at that time. And he said, and I was doing 65 and you were pulling away from me. It's like, oh, busted. Uh, and the third thing that happened that was that a very young Josh who may have been one or two in the back seat of our van in his car seat, when I fortunately didn't say worse, said out loud, you jerk, heard jerk. <laughs> like, oh man, they're gonna imitate me aren't they? An odd thing happened when I slowed down and I took the focus off me and where I was going and what I wanted and what I needed and put it on God and put it on other people. I wasn't angry anymore. People would cut me off and I'd say, well, bless you, you must be in a hurry. You know, instead of calling them a jerk, it was amazing the difference that it made. That is not just true in driving. When we take the focus off ourselves, when we take our, the focus off our own needs and onto others, other people become more important to us and we become angry much less often. I'm not perfect and I still, uh, when people do, mostly what I say now when people do things, I say, I wouldn't have done that, <laughs> which is really self-righteous too, so I'll have to just keep dealing with that. Um, but Paul is telling us to be other-oriented. In fact, this, this entire passage that we're reading this week is very much about being other-oriented. Beginning at verse 28, it says this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This just keeps getting more and more convicting. The first thing he says is don't steal, rather work. And then he gives us a reason for doing that or a motivation for doing that so that you will be able to help others who are in need. The value of work is throughout scripture. From Genesis 1, the value of work is there. And I believe if the church grabbed hold of this ethic of a good reason, a primary reason that we work is so that we can help others the need for public assistance would plummet. When the church is the church, the church, not the state, takes care of its own. But 
that is a soapbox that I don't have time for right now. And then we are to speak words that build up, not destructive words. The words he's talking about here that we are not to speak are destructive and abusive words, abusive language. Few things are, are as destructive to relationships as abusive language. And I just, at the last minute, thought I was supposed to say this, so I will. There is no place, particularly in our families, for name-calling. I am a blessed woman. My husband has never, my face, called me anything but a loving pet name. And I have never he, and we have never our children. And that is by the grace of God. There is no place for that in our families. Our words are to be used to edify, to build others up. And so that, Paul says literally, it may grant grace or give grace to the hearers. We are to speak gracious words instead of destructive ones. This is a thoroughly other-centered ethic that we're looking at today. Um, we are to avoid those things that destroy others and therefore destroy unity, and we are to practice those things that encourage and help others and therefore build community. And now in, in uh, Ephesians 4.30 into the first two verses of chapter 5, Paul's going to essentially give us Christian ethics in a nutshell. When he says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, where it says there, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the first word is and. And that connects grieving the Holy Spirit to what Paul has just said. It links the, the command to not grieve, uh, grieve the Holy Spirit with what precedes it. The Holy Spirit is and this, I get this from a particular theologian, he calls the Holy Spirit the divine agent of reconcili reconciliation and unity within the body. He is the one that promotes and helps us and guides us in reconciliation and unity. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is grieved, the heart of God is grieved when we act in ways that destroy unity, that destroy unity community and reconciliation, when we lie, when we sin in anger, when we speak abusively and destructively to one another. God's spirit is grieved by such behavior because he created us to be one in Christ. Paul, uh, Jesus prayed in John 17 for all those that would come after his disciples that they might be one just as he and the Father are one. He prayed for our unity. When we destroy it, it grieves the heart of God. But beyond that, the Holy Spirit is also, the, as Paul has told us in Ephesians, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, and he is the seal that proves that we belong to God. And so acting in such ways is completely incongruous to that truth, to who the Holy Spirit 
is. I love what Dr. Snodgrass says about this. He says, this verse marks the incongruity of grieving the one who is proof we belong to God and are destined for his future salvation. Why live contrary to him whose ownership seal we wear and in violation of our own destiny? It makes no sense for us to live that way. And so therefore, Paul says, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice. Now, some of this sounds like it's physical, but really, most of the emphasis here is still on words. Most of these words have to do with sort of, and I think I wrote this in the, in the lesson, sort of that chest bumping you know, thing you see on the football field sometimes where they're jawing at each other, more than anything physical. He's saying, get rid of it. Get rid of that kind of language. And then practice that which edifies. Be kind and compassionate and forgiving to one another. And then he tells us, be imitators of God. We are to imitate God. We are the image bearers of God. And as such, we are called to show the world what God is like who he is. And we do that in part by walking in love as Christ did, as Paul tells us to do here. Remember, Paul has talked a lot about, he's used the term in Christ a lot, and we talked about how Christ is our sphere of influence. We live in him. Well, because Christ is our sphere of influence, love is also the sphere in which we are to live. Because God is love and Christ is God. Love is the sphere of influence in which we live. Again, this is a holy, not holy H-O-L-Y, holy W-H-O-L-L-Y, others-centered ethic. This is the community that God desires for us to have as believers together. And we are to do whatever it takes to maintain the community that Christ created by his sacrifice. Knowing this and knowing all that Christ suffered in order to make that community possible, how can we possibly behave in ways that destroy the body of Christ? I don't know about you, but I find that very, very convicting. To apply this a little bit, I mean, there, boy, we could spend weeks on applying this, but I just want to talk a little bit about forgiveness, because I think that's a tremendously important aspect of our lives. And I want to define forgiveness. This is not Webster's de uh, definition. I did not consult dictionary.com, so just take it with a grain of salt. This is the Amy Keezer definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is relinquishing my right to retaliate to a, a hurt for a hurt done to me. Forgiveness is relinquishing my right to retaliate for a hurt done to me. It is refusing to hold another person's sin over his head. To use it against him. To hold it back in order to use it against him at some point. Ladies, there is freedom in that. There is freedom in letting go of the right to retaliate. Now, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't necessarily mean forgetting. There are some hurts that are so deep that we will never forget them. And it doesn't mean pretending like the hurt never happened. Because it did. 
it's, or denying that it ever happened. It simply means releasing the right to strike back at that person. This is how Dr. Snodgrass puts it. He says, forgiveness is not the absence of accountability. It is a refusal to let past wrong destroy present relations. That's a good definition. So why should we forgive? Why, why, why forgive? Well, first of all, we're commanded to, and it's really hard to get around that one. All over scripture, we're commanded to, and just here, Paul says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So we're commanded everywhere in scripture to forgive. But I believe one reason we're commanded to is that God knows it's in our best interest. And I'll talk about that in a minute. A second reason we are to forgive is because we ourselves have been forgiven. Forgiven people forgive. If someone comes to me and asks my forgiveness, what right do I have to hold that person to a higher standard than God holds him to? If God forgives when he asks, what right do I have? to refuse that forgiveness. But you might say, well, what if they're not remorseful? What if they haven't asked for my forgiveness? Well, I would say that Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But I would also say it is still in our best interest to forgive. And that's the third reason. It is in our best interest. Unforgiveness like anger, is a festering wound. One of the best sayings on forgiveness I've ever heard is that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Unforgiveness is poisonous to our lives. The only person who loses, the only person who suffers when I refuse to forgive is me, not the other person. Forgiven people forgive. Now in verses 3 through 6, Paul is going to tell us what not to wear, so what we are to put off, spiritually speaking. By the way, the show was recently canceled, Moment of Silence, and I'm very grateful I'll never be on it. Um, okay, so verses 3 through 6, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So, first of all, Paul tells us to put off that among us there should be no uh, sexual immorality or greed. The word for sexual immorality prohibits all forms of sexual immorality. The, um, the word is pornea, and it included uh, incest and promiscuity and prostitution and adultery and any sexual relation outside of the marriage covenant. But he goes beyond just saying don't do it. He says, among you, there should not even be a hint of such things. There, there should not be anything that leads to that. There should not be anything that even gives the impression of that. I know more women who have thought, you know what, I'm just having lunch with him. 
doesn't mean anything before having lunch alone with women. Do you know Billy Graham never was, has never been alone with a woman that was not his wife? Ever. Really, really hard to commit adultery if you're, if you're never alone with a woman. We had a young um, youth pastor years ago uh, at Avery Church, and I met with him one time. I was a good deal older than this young man, and I was nothing that he would want. And I came in, I shut the door, I sat down, and he got up, and he just was talking to me, and he just opened the door. And I said, you doing that because I'm here with you? Yeah. <laughs> there should not even be a hint. Also years ago, I had invited two neighbors, a mom uh, and her husband, if she wanted, and a single dad whose daughters were close to my daughter to come to walk through Bethlehem with me. At the last minute, the mom, and Jeff wasn't coming with me, at the last minute, the mom canceled out, and so it would have been this man and me. And I called him, and I said, you know what, I'm sorry, but I, I can't do this. And, and the other mom was like, what's wrong with you? It's not like you, there's anything going on with you and John. And I said, yeah, I know that. But this is my ethic. There should not even be anything that would make people go, who's the man with Amy? Not even anything that would give a hint of such a thing. Um, and then the second thing he says, that there should not be any greed. And that word is pleonexia, and it probably carries uh, the idea of greed or lust for more sexually. So he's probably still talking about sexuality. Um, but any sort of greed, like anger, can lead to other sins. These are things, Paul tells us, that are completely alien to the life of one who belongs to God, one who bears his image. And, and then he turns to the tongue again, um, as if he thinks we need that. And what he talks about here, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, are um, all things that are shameful, disgraceful, and indecent talk. That word co coarse joking uh, refers to double entendres, thinly veiled sexual innuendo. I'm being pretty vulnerable this, mor this morning, but also a, a number, a lot of years ago when I taught at Miller North, I taught in, um, we, we had a, an area where all of us had our desks, uh, the social studies department area, and um, I was there with mostly men, uh, especially on my side of the office where I was. And I was single, and I, I was a Christian. <laughs> I should probably make that clear. And there was a lot of this coarse joking that would go on, and a lot of this teasing, and a lot of this innuendo, and aimed at me, and I, and, and I, would, I would just give it back. And over time, and particularly as Jeff and I were dating and got engaged and got married, I realized that as a married woman, but more importantly as a child of God, I couldn't partake in this sort of activity, this sort of innuendo back and forth. It wasn't meaningless. Even if there's no action on it, it's still wrong to speak of such things. And so I stopped. Uh, it, was a, it was almost a flirtatious kind of thing. And so I stopped giving into that. Paul says that that is not fitting for God's holy people. But what is fitting is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the antidote to greed. For when we are grateful for what we have, we are far likely, far less likely to lust after more. When we are grateful to God for our husbands, we are far less likely 
to check out someone else's. When we are grateful for the many spiritual and physical blessings we have, we are far less likely to covet what someone else has and that we want. Ladies, be thankful. And then he gives us some warnings. And it says in here, uh, for of this you can be sure, or some versions say, uh, for you know. Actually, literally, Paul says, for you know knowing. He's saying, you know this. Uh, you know this to be true. And, and then he lists things that uh, people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul is saying here is he's saying that people whose lifestyles reflect such sins. This isn't the occasional lapse. This isn't, oh my goodness, I was just greedy. That's it, I'm done. Um, it's, these are people whose lives are in rebellion to God and his word, and therefore, that is how they live. And then he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. And he's talking about the culture here. Don't let the culture suck you in to its sexual perversion in speech, in life, in habit. Do not let it suck you in. Do not be like them, which is the next point that he's going to make. He says, therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So the first verse here, therefore, do not be partners with them, is kind of a heading over this whole section. And he's saying, since those people that I've just described are under judgment, and since they are in rebellion to God, do not be partners with them. Now that does not mean separate from them completely. Otherwise, how would they ever have the opportunity to hear the truth and come to know Christ themselves? It does mean do not become a party to their folly. Do not partake in their sin. Do not share in their sin. Do not join in the coarse jesting of the social studies department. One theologian said, if one is joined to Christ and shares in him, one cannot share in the lives of those practicing sexual sin in greed. In other words, lady, if we're living in two worlds, we're not in Christ. We're not living in Christ. If we have two masters, Christ is not our master. And then verse 8, which says, For you were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. That uh, one theologian said, isn't just a good summary of Ephesians, it's a good summary of all of Paul's theology. It's also the next formerly now contrast. You were once darkness. Formerly, you were darkness. Now, you are light in the Lord. Walk, live, same word that we've talked about before, walk as children of light. Again, we see Paul's spheres of influence theology. 
People take on the characteristics of the sphere in which they live. Have you ever noticed when you're around someone, you kind of take on their characteristics, maybe the way they speak? My mother did this completely. If you had, if you had any sort of accent, within minutes, she was speaking with the exact same accent. The best one is when she was ordering Chinese food on the phone. <laughs> and we hear her and she's saying this. Yes, we would like two curry chicken. No, four curry chicken, too hot, too not so hot. And then she turns to me and she says, you want not so hot? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want hot. <laughs> But we do, we take on the characteristics of the sphere in which we live. That's why so many times my husband will do something, I'll say, that's, that's exactly what your mother does. That's exactly the face your mother makes. We take on those characteristics. Those that are in darkness are darkness. But those who are in light are light. But they are not the true light. They, we, are only light in the Lord because he is the light of the world. We are also the light. Again, Paul is telling us to become who you are. This is not just wishful thinking when he says, walk as children of light. He's saying this is who Christ has made you to be. Live, walk who you already are. Become who you already are. And then he tells us what that looks like, what walking in the light looks like. And walking in the light produces goodness, righteousness, and truth. It produces all of those things that Paul has told us to put on. Kindness and compassion and forgiveness and speaking truth. All of those things. And then to end it, he says, let the light do its work. That, the, that our light shining on others has a powerful impact. When we walk in the light, people notice. In fact, when we walk in the light, we actually shine that light. And that light shines on the deeds of others, and they're exposed. Now, Paul's not calling us to do some scarlet letter in the town square sort of thing on people, where we pull them up and we say, here's the adulterer. No, he's not. that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when we live a life of love and when we walk in obedience to God, others see that and they see their own lives and they notice the difference. They see their sin and their need and it's exposed. Now, when he ends this, what is this last thing about? This is not a quotation from the Old Testament because it says Christ will shine on you. Um, but it's definitely influenced by the Old Testament, particularly uh, Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 60. And, and some, uh, some theologians believe that it may have been an early Christian hymn. I mean, obviously it's something that everybody knew because he says, as it says, which is how he usually introduces Old Testament sayings. Uh, it may have been one Paul himself wrote. It may be something that he himself wrote. But either way, that's not his point. His point is that he's reminding his readers of their own conversions. He's saying that, that in Christ, God awakened them from the dead. He awakened them from their spiritual sleep. And Christ's light shone on them. And they were no longer living 
in darkness. Therefore, as P.T. O'Brien says, let them now live out the ethical implications of this wonderful change. Paul's point is this, that if, if, the, if Christ's light, excuse me, if Christ's light so changed your life, it has the power to change others. Ladies, I leave you with this final charge. Let us live, let us walk as children of Christ's light in such a magnanimous, compelling way that others will want to walk with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray this for us. I pray that rather than being partners with sin, that we will be partners with you, that we will walk the way you have walked, that we will walk with you, that we will walk in you in such a way that others will say, I want to walk with her. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, ladies.